welcome dear listeners uh, you are listening to elp's podcast series on sanctions uh, in today's episode we will explore some of the nuances of the uk sanctions regime exploring how they have evolved post brexit uh, we will also explore the extent of the uk sanctions global reach their implication for foreign businesses and crucial steps these businesses should consider given the rapid evolution of these uk laws to help us unpack these questions we are joined today uh, by michelle lindeman uh, michelle leads van bale bellis london based international trade team Uh, she specializes in providing clients with strategic and commercial advice on all aspects of international financial trade sanctions and export control uh, michelle's practice focuses on providing guidance to clients on compliance with eu and uk sanctions drafting and advising on sanctions compliance policies and procedures advising on sanctions enforcement and conducting internal investigations related to suspected sanction breaches uh, michelle also regularly engages with the uk's office of financial uh, sanctions implementation the ofsi and other regulators both in the uk and in various eu member states to apply for licenses and authorization to seek guidance and to respond to government inquiries and uh, investigations uh, over 25 years in with over 25 years in practice and more than a decade of advising clients on eu and uk sanction matters she's a genuine sanction specialist uh, welcome michelle we're delighted you could join us thank you absolute pleasure to be here yeah likewise uh, let's let's just dive into it perhaps it would be best to start uh, you know with an overview of the current uk sanctions framework uh, where does sanctions law in the uk stand today uh, more specifically uh, you know following brexit did the uk incorporate the eu sanctions framework into its domestic law or establish new regulations how does that stand today thank you yeah great question to kick us off there um when the uk exited from the european union we had to put some legislation in place in order to enable us to continue both to implement united nations sanctions and also to continue with sanctions regimes that we previously um implemented through the european union so we put in place the sanctions and anti money laundering act 2018 and then pretty much all of the eu sanctions legislation that was already part of our law was then implemented through that act there were revisions the legislation was was called slightly different things and and we've added a few sort of tweaks and and things like that but in effect we have the same restrictions in place um that we had before and then those have developed under the new sort of um samla program so the sanctions and anti money laundering act gave the uk government power to implement all the sanctions restrictions that we had in place and then to make new sanctions as we've seen with the Russia regime over the last sort of 18 20 months where lots and lots of new legislation has been brought in again very closely aligned with the EU but we are doing our own thing so it's important to be aware that there are some very distinct differences now between the EU and the UK uh thank you mission that does lead to uh, another question on you know what exactly is the range and scope of sanctions laws within the uk we know that you know across the world uh, you know uh, countries levy sanctions or apply sanctions on on say sector wise or or based on themes or segments or on countries as a whole so to what extent does that exist and you know a little bit on what the administrative structure controlling these sanctions might be yes um So very similar again because our sanctions regime is based on what we had in place when we were a member of the European Union um we have similar restrictions in place so we have um restrictions where we can designate persons and impose freezing restrictions on them um we have restrictions on the financial services so some companies that are you, you can't provide loans to and credit that sort of thing 
Um, we also have trade sanctions in place, so where particular um, items that you try and stop going to a country are being bought from a country. And a lot of that is around trying to prevent um, really any sort of economic benefit going to that country. Um, but we've also got these sort of other horizontal sanctions regimes. So we have um, human rights regimes, we have chemical weapons, counterterrorism. So sanctions can be imposed, not just in relation to different countries, but also where there are particular uh, issues that you want to deal with. So the human rights regime, for example, um, that you can sanction somebody from any, any country in the world can be sanctioned under that regime, same with counterterrorism. In terms of restrictions on countries, there are a number of countries that are subject to restrictions, and I won't run through the whole list, um, but you've got things like Afga Afghanistan, of course, Belarus and Russia, which we've seen so much activity on those two over the, the last few months. Um, we still have, um, there are a lot of restrictions in place in relation to Myanmar. Um, we have got Bosnia, Burundi, Congo. So. Um, it's quite important for people when they are doing business to make sure they do just have a thing. If you've got a UK nexus, make sure you're aware. Sanctions in the UK is not all about Russia. There are other countries that are subject to restrictions and there can be sanctioned persons under some of those other country regimes. And you might not even think about it. Sometimes people are caught out because they don't even think to check that, well, I'm doing business with a country, you know, everything seems okay perhaps they don't even check the counterparts. And actually, as we now know, it's really critical that you're checking for designated persons. It might not just be about Russia. There are plenty of other countries out there that are subject to restrictions. Um, when you're dealing with UK sanctions as well, um, one of the other difficulties that you perhaps have is there are financial restrictions that are administered by OFSI, but then the trade restrictions, um, we have the um, Economic Control Joint Unit um, and also under the Treasury, and they are dealing with sort of the trade restrictions. So there are two different authorities there that you might have to deal with if, for example, you want to get a license, because we do have licensing regimes in the UK as well. And that's actually another difference from between the UK and the EU, that there are opportunities to say to the government, hang on a minute, we've got this particular business we need to do. The reason we should be allowed to do it, even though it's restricted, uh, is this, and you give the reasons, and they might actually issue a license. So that's a big difference, actually, between the UK and Okay. Wonderful. Uh, could I just, I mean, with a quick follow up, I do want to get deeper into it, but perhaps a, a few examples of what might be some of the key distinctions between the EU and the UK? Yeah, I, I think the key thing is that um, when you're looking at the European Union, of course, you have a number of different member states, they will have to agree on things. The UK can go off and do yeah. its own thing. So, in fact, with the regimes, there's a lot that's quite the same. One area of difference, um, and perhaps a critical one, is when we're looking at um, designated persons and how you work out if somebody is, is subject to freezing restrictions. So in the EU, you have freezing restrictions applied to somebody who's put on a sanctions list, uh, and you can't deal with any company that is owned by a sanctioned person if it's got 50% sanctioned ownership or if there's control by sanctioned persons. Now, in the EU, if you have two designated persons and between them, they've got more than 50%, the company they own is considered sanctioned. Now, in the UK, we went down a slightly different route and we said we don't aggregate ownership. So if you have one sanctioned person owns 30% of a company and another sanctioned person owns 25% of a, a company, that company would not necessarily be considered sanctioned because of ownership. So even though you've got 55% ownership by sanctioned parties, we don't add the two together. 
But we do then have a prong where we look at control in a bit more detail. And our control test is actually a little bit broader in terms of have you got a sanctioned person who's actually got control? So that's one area where there's a bit of a difference there. And you've got to look quite carefully then in terms of how is the UK sort of actually implementing those uh, restrictions on, on designated persons and any, any companies that they might own or control. Um, other places where there might be differences in, is in terms of sort of items that are subject to restrictions in terms of imports and exports. Again, there's a lot of alignment, but there are some differences. So you've actually got to check if you're looking at exporting goods to Russia uh, or you're importing things from Russia into the UK. Again, a lot of alignment between the EU and the UK, but it's not always exactly the same. So you've got to check those commodity codes for products to make sure is the thing that you're importing or exporting subject to restrictions. It might not be quite the same as the EU. Sure. And uh, sometimes, you know, the, the fact that they're partially aligned is sometimes a little more dangerous because it leads to this, you know, uh, complacency that I've complied with the EU. UK looks so similar that it's probably the same and I don't need to look at it afresh. And you know those that's that's I mean the devil lies in the detail there. Sometimes these small differences it, it, make exactly difference. right. Yes. So sometimes a little bit of knowledge is dangerous because you think you know what the position is, but you've actually got to go away and just double check whether there might be differences between the two regimes. And equally, the EU, in terms of when they're looking at things, um, they have restrictions on um, imports into the European Union. Um, it, it can be wider, just the way things work out. So again, very, very important just to double check that you properly understand, one, whether you've got UK jurisdiction there, and two, if so, are the rules a little bit different from perhaps what you might be accustomed to with the EU? Yeah. Sure. Uh, I think I think that, that starts us off exactly where we wanted to go. Uh, uh, there's this, but let me just also push back a little from an Indian perspective, Michelle. Uh, uh, there is a general perception that Western sanction laws, including the UK, perhaps with the exception of the of the US, they do not have this extraterritorial application, you know, unlike secondary sanctions in the US, for example. And if I'm an Indian business with some kind of presence in the UK, then I'm more than likely to have paid attention to UK sanctions already, uh, you know. But there are also Indian companies that deal with the UK, that may export to the UK. Or, or trade with the UK, but don't have presence in the UK or and such businesses might think uh, that even if they export to the UK, let's say, uh, they don't really need to be cognizant of the UK sanctions. Do the UK sanction regulations extend beyond its borders? Uh, or, or do they apply it to foreign entities or individuals with connections or ties? Uh, the words nexus, I think, were used uh, a short while ago by you to the UK, resembling the approach taken by the EU. I know we've traversed this just a little bit. But the extraterritorial applicability and how far the UK laws extend beyond the borders of the UK, uh, could you could you opine on that? Absolutely. Yeah. So UK sanctions apply to UK nationals, as you would expect, and UK yeah. incorporated businesses and to any activity that takes place within the EU. So far, so straightforward. Now, the part that's a little bit more difficult is working out if there's some other form of UK nexus. Now, the UK um, Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI, has put some guidance out in its monetary penalties guidance, which talks about what, how far does this jurisdiction extend. And it says it can extend if there is some form of UK nexus. And it's probably just worthwhile um, thinking about it because it says a nexus might be created by such things as a UK company working overseas. So if you've got some activity in India and, and there's a UK company behind it, uh, it could be somebody giving an approval for something. If you've got UK persons giving approvals for things, uh, it can be if you've got actions taking place in India, uh, as I say, 
they're either directed from the UK or maybe there are some financial services being provided in the UK. One of the examples the guidance gives is if, if there's insurance bought on UK markets but held or used overseas. Now, I've not seen anything where they've elaborated on that, but basically they're going to be looking where is there an actual sort of proper kind of UK connection, a genuine, a genuine connection to the UK. And sometimes there are very complicated business structures in place and they might um, sort of be looking at what, you know, is there a branch of a company doing something um, and, and who's actually got control, who's actually um basically authorizing things to take place so if you are purely sat in india doing business and um you are trading with the uk your day-to-day -day interactions might not really have any sanctions sort of issues arising but what you've got to think about is okay what if i'm sitting in india and i'm importing things from russia um to take to the uk well then you're going to have to think about it because clearly if you're trading with the uk and you're you're using india as a sort of um almost a country that's sort of diverting things from Russia into the UK, then you're going to have to be cognizant of what the UK restrictions are, because you could very well then get caught. But again, it's just being very careful to understand exactly what are your touch points with the UK? Is there any banking or transactions going through the UK? Things like that, things that could actually bring you into that UK jurisdiction. Yeah, that's that's uh, uh, very helpful. Uh, a question I had since we were, since we've kind of, uh, compared EU and UK a couple of times. The EU is implementing a few anti-circumvention measures around its sanction regimes as well. Is are any such any such measures being contemplated in the UK as well? Yeah, the way our legislation is drafted, um, in fact, there are already some provisions within the legislation that mean it is an offence if you take actions which will circumvent any restrictions. So you have to be cautious around that. Um, and and there are also a lot of the, the phrasing where you can't do things directly or indirectly. So sometimes people think, well, maybe if instead of dealing with the sanctioned person, I deal with somebody else who then deals with the sanctioned person, that makes it okay. It doesn't because we have this direct or indirect kind of issue. Um, so that plus the circumvention. Um, the oil and steel restrictions in Russia are quite interesting because there we had restrictions on um, Russian or iron and steel products coming into the UK. But one of the issues there is that um, those products sometimes wouldn't come necessarily direct from Russia. And yeah. you might have steel products that are being produced using Russian prohibited Inputs. items. Yeah, yeah, they're then transferred into something different or, or, or they're dealt with in a country like India and then come into the UK. And so Russia's still getting its economic benefit from selling its iron and steel. So what we've done in line with the European Union is to bring in some restrictions that prevent things that are made out of restricted iron and steel from Russia coming into the UK. Um, so you've got to be quite careful there. And one of the things there is that anybody in the UK importing those sorts of products will be asking the parties that they're dealing with, so an Indian supplier, to produce documents showing what is the source of that iron and steel product because they need to be able to comply in the UK. The UK person has got to say, well, hang on a minute, I need to know what is the origin of that so that I'm not in breach if I bring something in that's actually got prohibited content in it. So again, all sort of aimed at circumvention. I suspect we are also going to see some legislation maybe in the next few months looking at sort of diversion risk countries and things like that, because it's something that certainly the US, EU and UK are all very focused on is the fact that some countries are being used um, 
to divert products into Russia. So if you suddenly have, um, I don't know, a, a country somewhere that's not in the EU or the UK that's suddenly ordering a lot of things it wouldn't normally, um, you know, what if they are then they're taking those things and they're going into Russia? Now, we do know that that is happening. And so the US, EU and UK are all looking at how do they prevent that sort of diversion risk? And then what restrictions can they put in place to try and stop that? So again, that's an area to watch, certainly one that's developing, as I say, both within Europe, the UK and across the pond in the United States. Right. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, based on what you just said, uh, any Indian business might think, you know, as long as nothing can be enforced against me, perhaps I don't need to be as cognizant of these laws. Uh, you know, why should Indian businesses pay attention to these sanctions, even if there is a little bit of extraterritoriality to them? Uh, perhaps another way of phrasing the question is, how rigorously does the UK enforce its sanctions laws? Uh, you know, uh, are there really any penalties? Am I, am I uh, to fear punitive action as an Indian business if I don't pay attention to these sanctions? And can you share yeah. some instances of penalties imposed on foreign companies or individuals, uh, especially, say, let's say in jurisdictions like India or outside the UK at the very least? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. And um, I think it's true to say that the trend in relation to enforcement in the UK is that there is going to be an increase in enforcement activity. To date, however, it's been slow. And if we look at the financial sanctions regime first, OFSI as an entity came into being in 2016. And in 2017, it was given powers to impose monetary penalties. Now, since then, we have only had eight penalties that have been issued. And uh, plus a disclosure notice, which is a new type of thing that's just come out. But the penalties that they've issued so far, these monetary penalties, um, have been against um, companies that quite clearly committed breaches. Um, they are mainly of UK companies, um, or where there was a very, very clear um, transaction between a non-UK company, um, but it was doing something within the UK. Right. Um, so we haven't really seen, certainly haven't seen any penalties against Indian companies. We certainly haven't sort of seen a whole raft of monetary penalties. Um, and so it's, it's been a little bit slow. What we have seen obviously doing those issue and warning letters, they are working more with sort of um, encouraging people to be compliant, giving warning lessons, trying to coax people into doing the right thing. We have not yet seen those sort of huge penalties that the US has had. The US has got a lot more experience imposing those sorts of penalties. So on the financial sanction side, not so many penalties so far, but certainly we know that OFSI is investigating lots of things. And, and that aside from monetary penalties, there are, of course, provisions for imprisonment. So individuals who are caught up in things, if they are knowingly and intentionally doing things in breach of UK sanctions, you can get a prison sentence. So at the moment, there hasn't been a huge amount of enforcement activity, as I say, eight penalties um, since 2017 when they have those powers. Now, on the other side, on the trade sanctions, and those uh, penalties are enforced by Her Majesty's, His Majesty's Revenue and Customs. Um, it's hard to get used to uh, the difference there. So His Majesty's Revenue and Customs. Um, we have seen quite a lot of trade penalties over the years. And one of the things we've seen there is that the amount of those penalties has increased. But it tends to be, again, quite serious offences. And they might not necessarily be under sanctions regimes, they could be more under export control type of regimes. So where you've got um, military goods and things like that, 
that are being exported in breach of restrictions. And some of those um, monetary penalties we've seen, um, particularly over the last 12 months or so, we've had some huge penalties, um, you know, over a million pounds. Um, certainly the individual size of penalties is going up and up. And again, on that side, you can have criminal penalties, but HMRC can go and do these monetary or compound penalties um, where there's sort of a settlement is done. And then we don't get a lot of detail about what the actual breach is because that's then confidential. But the the company that is in breach pays a hefty, very hefty penalty for being in breach of those trade restrictions. But again, we don't get details as to who the companies are. Uh, we don't find out exactly what the goods are. You just see that somebody has had a penalty of X amount because they have um, exported unlicensed goods to a, a country that they're not allowed to do so. So it's a little bit difficult at the moment, really, to sort of see. But all I would say is, I think, as with the US and with the EU and the UK, particularly with the ramp up in legislation relating to Russia, we are seeing also those regulators saying, well, hang on a minute, we need to make sure people are complying and that they are talking. The talk is all about that there's going to be more enforcement. But they are not in the UK trying to trip up people who are actively trying to comply. So if you have a good compliance program in place, you've done the right thing, but you've made a mistake. That is not the sort of thing that they're interested in. They are interested in people who are knowingly and intentionally committing breaches of sanctions. You know, they know that they're doing the wrong thing, that they're taking things that they shouldn't to Russia or, or, or whatever the uh, the breach is. Um, so when we're not quite in the sort of US OFAC penalty sort of side of things yet, sure. but they do have the powers to issue penalties. So I think it's always... Um, it's good to try and comply. You don't want to be the one that's made an example of. That's actually feels like a more reasonable stance to have where one must be proved to have been willfully trying to violate the requirements of the sanctions. But I I, I can't help but wonder is 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 this a little bit driven also by uh, you know political will and the news cycle and how tense the geopolitical boiler room really is. Uh, because, you know, if, if God forbid, there's an inciting incident in the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, and then, you know, suddenly one might find that uh, enforcement is happening a lot more harshly uh, because something is happening now. And, you know, it's it's, it's more prevalent, it's, it's more relevant to, to you know, uh, geopolitics. It, do, do you also feel that's that's kind of a driving factor here? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And in fact, it, that did precipitate a change last year. So in relation to our financial sanctions regime, if you deal with a designated person, there is now, and this is a change from the EU, there is now strict liability. So previously, if you breached um, the sanctions regime and you dealt with somebody that's on a sanctions list, um, there was a defense if you had no reasonable cause to suspect that your action would give rise to a breach. Now, that defense has disappeared on the financial sanctions side. So if you actually deal with somebody who's on a list, you have you face strict liability. That is the same as the position in the US. We didn't used to have that here. But right. what Ofsky has said, it, again, they are not looking to trip you up. So whilst that strict liability is there, it makes it easier for them to take enforcement action if they want to. Again, they're not going to come down very, very harshly on somebody who has got something a bit wrong in their screening process, or they did all the screening, but maybe somebody was added to a list, you know, the moment after they did their screen and, you know, it wasn't caught. So they are they are going to be looking at that sort of proportionally. And I think that's the critical thing with OFSI. They do say that they want to be proportional in their approach. Um, so you have got that strict liability on the designated person side in relation to all those trade restrictions that I was talking about before. Again, 
same, um, you've, you've got a defense there. So if you have taken action, you're trying to comply, that sort of thing, right. they are not going to come down harshly on you. And, and certainly criminal penalties are typically only put in place where somebody, as I say, has been knowingly and willfully been involved in something that, and they can show that. So, but that we can't get into all the details of how the penalties work, but just to give you that sort of overview, you've got an issue right. with strict liability since June 22 in, in the UK. And that is a difference because um, the EU doesn't yet have that. Right. No, that, that's, that's very helpful and quite clear. Uh, so, okay. So we've established that, you know, Indian businesses and the UK based partners may need to pay attention to sanctions. But the question then that arises is that, you know, as an Indian business, what exactly do I need to do in layman terms? If I'm, if I'm not someone who's conversant with the law, you know, uh, uh, some Western jurisdictions like the US, for example, have published best practices or guidelines, uh, uh, you know, for, for helping uh, businesses ensure compliance. Uh, does the UK also issue similar guidance officially or, you know, uh, through institutions and uh, nevertheless, it, it, the bottom line being what practical steps can an Indian business and, you know, its partners take to ensure compliance with the UK sanctions regulations? Yeah, the, the key things are, I think, you have to carry out a risk assessment on your business. And I suppose there are three things that we always say you need to look at. You need to think about who are you dealing with? What are you dealing with? And where is it going? So those are your three things to think about. On the who, it's always checking whether your counterparties are sanctioned. Are they on any list? That means it's restricted to do any business activities with them. And remember, don't just check the person that you're dealing with, but work out who they're owned and controlled by. Because if you deal with a company that is owned or controlled by a sanctioned person, even if you have to go up through several layers of ownership to find out, make sure you know who the ultimate beneficial owners are. Because the thing we've seen with the Russian um, businesses in particular, they're very, very complex structures. It's not always that clear who's behind them. So you can get caught yeah. out that way. Yeah. So screening, checking you know who you're dealing with, very important. What are you dealing with? What are the items that are you are exporting or importing or what are the services? And, and checking that you understand if there are any UK restrictions on those. And if you're not sure, have a look at the UK government websites, get some legal counsel, because there are very, very, particularly with Russia, very complex, complex programs in place now. And then the last thing is where, where are products going? So again, it's sort of thinking about if you think you've got a UK nexus and you think you're dealing with products that could be subject to restrictions, if you're being asked to ship things to Turkey or Dubai or somewhere and you think that's a bit odd, we wouldn't normally have to ship those goods to those countries. Normally those things go to Russia. Make sure you double check that you're not being used for some sort of diversion. Um, so those are kind of your three big factors. Um, yeah, the who, the what and the where have compliance processes in place and have sanctions exclusion clauses. So if you do find something that smells bad and you've got worries that you've got an opportunity to get out of your contract um, with some sort of sanctions exclusion clause in there. Sure. And and uh, on a follow up on the where. So uh, uh, does the where uh, also include where the product is from? So, for example, an Indian a processor may inadvertently buy inputs from a sanctioned uh, supplier or country and then export to the UK. So is it, I assume the where also includes implicitly checking where your inputs are coming in from, you know, supply chain is clean. Yeah, absolutely right. It, it's, it's just that critical part uh, of making sure you really understand 
what you're dealing with, where it's come from, and who could be involved. And it's all part of that sort of sanctions risk assessment, making sure that you know, and then and making sure that any end users are also um, screened and that you know where things are going. And, and it's, so it's, it's lots of checking. And unfortunately, that makes quite a lot of work for people. And then don't forget when you've done all those checks, keep your records because if you get it wrong and somebody comes and says, well, what did you do to check? It's all very well saying, oh, well, I checked this, this and this. But if you haven't got the records to prove it right. and, and you got it wrong, that's quite difficult. So do make sure when you're doing all those checks that you keep your records. Right. So if uh, if I were to summarize it, essentially, it's about information. It's about doing your diligence and ensuring that you take that little extra effort to find out about who you're dealing with and what you're dealing with and, you know, like you said, where it's going and or where it's coming from in case of procurement. And then ensuring that all the diligence you've exercised also has evidence underlying, uh, which can which can substantiate the effort you took to make sure that, you know, that there was some kind of uh, compliance down the line should things inadvertently go sour. Uh, app summarization. That's a very good summarization. It's a little bit... Um know your client but an expanded version because you've yeah. got to know your client you've got to know your client's client you've yeah. got to know your products um so it is as you say it's all about information information is king the more you know and the more you have clarity on those supply chains uh the less likely you are to have an inadvertent sanctions breach well i, I thank you i think that that clears up uh, uh many of uh, the questions i had and thank you michelle so much for uh, clearing these issues up so succinctly these these laws are sometimes hard to pass for somebody who's not uh, uh, conversant with them and uh, you've, you've arrayed them and explained them so simply and uh, uh, yet covered everything so accurately. Thank you so much for your time, Michelle. Uh, we're very grateful that you could join us. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.